Hello, and welcome to Head to Head, an Investment Week podcast where we bring people from opposing sides of debate to discuss their views. I'm Kathleen Gallagher, Features Editor at Investment Week, and today we are discussing China. An unfortunate combination of factors have meant that China has lagged other equities this year, with the MSCI and China index hitting a six-year low in mid-March. And while it has rallied somewhat since then, it's still down 15.7% from the start of the year to the 18th of March. Headwinds facing China include companies being at risk of being delisted in the U.S., COVID numbers on the rise, geopolitical concerns around Ukraine, and ongoing challenges with the property developer Evergrande. However, there has also been news out of Beijing with the government saying it would introduce, quote, policies that are favorable to the market, end quote. This has led banks such as Credit Suisse and Citigroup to announce that they are looking to purchase more Chinese stocks. To discuss these competing factors and the investment case for and against China more generally, we are speaking to Jian Shi Cortezi, Investment Director at GAM Investments, and David Reese, Schroeder's Senior Emerging Markets Economist. Hello and welcome, guys. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, to start off, do you mind introducing yourselves, Jian? Hello, I'm Jenshi Cortezi. I'm an investment director for GAM Investment Management, and I'm responsible for a China Equity Fund and the Asia Equity Fund. Brilliant. And David? Hi, everyone. I'm David Reese. I'm senior emerging markets economist at Schroeder's based in London. Cool. Well, welcome, guys, and thank you so much for, for joining us. Um, so China, I mean, always a lot going on in that economy and in that nation, but um, it's been, I guess, even more complicated if possible this year. There's been issues with property, issues with tech stocks, all sorts. Um, so how do you think it's it's faring? I mean, there are some kind of stats that show that the market's been a bit depressed this year, but yeah, what is your thinking, Xian? So if we look at the Chinese equity market, it has been in decline for more than 12 months. Actually, the peak was February last year. So the first lockdown was uh, mainly triggered by regulation tightening in internet anti-monopoly, education, etc. And that has led to a derating of the whole China market. And then towards the end of last year, uh, the market was also concerned about the property market slowdown, the, the debt issue of some of the highly leveraged property developers. And the beginning of this year, actually, China started out outperforming the other markets. And then the Ukraine uh, situation happened. And after that, we have seen uh, um, rising concerns of sanctions spilling over into China as people are scared that China will side with Russia leading to sanctions. And in the meantime, the US have been talking about delisting Chinese ADRs. And there's a lot of confusion around that topic leading to selling pressure. So we saw quite dramatic sell-off two weeks ago. And just in the last uh, one week, actually the market has rebounded quite hard. Brilliant, yeah. So David, do you think that you know, that properly summarizes where we're kind of at today. And if so, how long do you think it could take for for China to kind of continue rebounding? Maybe it'll start now, or perhaps it might take a little bit longer. What do you think? Yeah, so obviously I look at things much more through the macro lens. Um, And so there's been a lot of noise uh, in in markets, global markets, being Chinese markets, because of sort of geopolitical concerns, as we just heard from from Jim. But um, I think in terms of the macro side, 
you know, there are reasons to think that, you know, things are going to be a little bit soft and that in that environment, that's still a little bit of a headwind for markets. So, you know, the official data that were printed last week were actually pretty strong for the economy. Uh, but most other indicators that we tracked hadn't really been pointing to um, significant strength. And actually, most things we've been tracking have been suggesting that, you know, the weakness that we saw started to come through last year will persist a bit longer in the near term. So certainly most thing, most indicators point to a slowdown in manufactured exports, which have been the key driver of the economy for the last two years, more or less. And, you know, that could weaken that prop to growth. And yet, and also we yet to really see a turnaround in the domestic economy. So, you know, there has been a lot of noise in, in markets in general, and there's been regulatory stuff going on. But in the background behind all of that, there's been a macro story of China was the first economy to come through COVID to rebound, but then to start slowing down. And I think that's also been reflected in markets, and maybe that has a little bit further to run um, before you start to see the turnaround. Brilliant. Yeah. So I guess if you had to put a figure on it, what would you, what time frame would you anticipate it kind of starting to have a turnaround? So, I mean, the leading indicators, there's a couple of leading indicators that, that we follow for kind of long, longer term cyclical dynamics. One is the credit impulse, which I think everyone is pretty familiar with. And the other one is real M1. And, you know, historically they've given about a nine month lead on the economy, but they've given well, I guess a few months lead on, on activity in China, uh, sorry, performance in Chinese markets. Um, so they have actually started to drop and turn. Um, so, you know, that might suggest that certainly when you sort of overlay the year on year changes in markets, that the sort of the trough should be coming in the next month or so. And then you might start to see some improvements sort of later in the year. But um, you know, there's nothing to suggest at the moment it's going to be a really strong rebound in those leading indicators, and therefore it's not clear that markets will also rebound strongly. Gian, how do, how do you kind of feel about that analysis? Um, in terms of where where the market is or when it is, I think it's just impossible to predict. For example, let's turn back at the beginning. We're sitting January 1st this year. Nobody can predict the most important event for the market this year, which is Russia, Ukraine. So in my view, it's impossible to say, uh, you know, to accurately predict when exactly the market will, will bottom out because we don't know what are the most important uh, news that will come out. But rather I, I would say that also, um, how do we define uh, the market that finally, you know, gaining strength we already saw the Chinese market rebounding 25% from the bottom in the last week. So it's that strength. Normally we always see that people are confirmed about market strength when the bull market is already two thirds you know, in its way. And then by the time people actually come in, that's when they feel comfortable, when all the data is good, and that's when the market is expensive. Then they go in and soon the market turns down. Um, so I think at the end of the day, um, the market leads the economy. The, econom the economic policies have already turned supportive late last year, but there is a lagging effect that will show into the economy. However, if we look at the market, we look at the valuation of companies, they are at ridiculous levels. For example, last week, when we look at Alibaba, half of its market cap is in cash. 
And today, the, the company announced that they will buy back their own shares. So theoretically, if the company spends all the share on the book, they can buy back half of the company's stocks. So this is how cheap the market has become. Some of the large caps are down 70% from the peak. Some of the smaller companies are down 90% from the peak. We see companies with market cap of $400 million with $1 billion on the balance sheet. And this is not just in the in the tech sector, in the internet sector, also in the more traditional value type of sectors, things are very cheap. So today we see cheap valuations in value, in growth in China, and this is not the case in most of the other markets. So I think at the end of the day, as investors, um, we cannot wait till we feel comfortable because if you want to feel comfortable, investing is not the right activities. The best time to buy oil was March 2020 when nobody wanted oil, when oil price was at 20. So I think this is what I want to put into perspective. And today in China, we see so many companies trading at multi-year low valuations. And we know the government policy is turning supportive. And all the slowdown we have seen is mostly government engineered, and they have the ability to turn it around. Yeah, so the government, I mean, they've played quite an interesting role in terms of the the fate of some of those stocks um, last year and into this year. I think there's kind of been um, more news recently about governments promising market friendly policy. Are, do we know what that's going to look like and what sectors that might impact? Uh, so actually, if we look at the, the government regulations, uh, there there is what actually happened and what people perceived. So there was one sector, the education sector, where the government policy pretty much wiped out the large part of the business because the government said uh, after school tutoring cannot happen on the weekend or during holiday. However, that's a very tiny part of the Chinese economy. But if we look at internet company, the regulation is really pretty much in line with global standard. So look at Alibaba, what really happened to Alibaba? You're, if you're in China, you're buying things on Alibaba app. So what the government said is that previously, for example, Alibaba said, says to some merchants, if you sell on my platform, you cannot sell on my competitor's platform. And the government says, no, you have to stop that. Or uh, Alibaba, you cannot share the credit card information with your other apps. So if you really look at what actually happened, it's not that much more severe than other countries. However, investors' perception, given the normal perception on China, is, is completely different. And that has led to the big sell-off. And we have seen companies that actually benefit from anti-monopoly. Because if you are the second or third largest player in a, in a uh, in the internet, you are actually benefiting. However, it doesn't matter. Their stock prices are sold off the same way. So there's a big disconnect of fundamental and the stock price. Very interesting. And, and actually, I, I think I didn't answer your question. Um, the, the, the government support can be very simple, just less regulation. And before announcing, I think one thing that really scared investors was because when the Chinese regulators announced they want to uh, regulate certain areas, they do not give you know, detailed explanation. And what the government has said recently is that they would make the regulation more 
transparent, more predictable, and there will also be more coordination within the government, considering the impact on the financial market when they make announcement on regulation. So I think here, just by doing less, it's enough to support market sentiment. Okay, interesting. And and David, what, what do you think about the role the government's kind of having within the economy in China and what that kind of movement's looking like at the moment? Well, it, I mean, if you think about what, what happened last year with the clampdowns on various companies and, the, you know, at, at one point it felt like every hour we were getting a new announcement of some new regulation uh, and there was obviously a lot of noise around that. But I think when you, when you cut through the noise from an economics perspective, it was clear that there were some threads in there of one, uh, wanting to reorientate the economy. China's economy has been in a structural slowdown now for a decade. Um, and, you know, it seemed to me that there's a desire to reallocate resources and capital and labor from sectors that aren't productive and are kind of, you know, reaching the end of the, uh, the, end of the cycle, like the real estate cycle is a classic example of that, right? It's just looking more and more like the misallocation of capital and huge debt buildup, uh, which, you know, short-term could be used as something to drive growth, but long-term, China was just building too many houses at the wrong places and building up huge vulnerabilities. That money could clearly be better spent and reallocated to new technologies, new sectors that could support productivity. I kind of feel like the, the, what we see with the tech companies, and I, I'm more of an economist, right? But it, it seemed like the tech companies more fell between those two stalls where, you know, one, on the one hand, technology is clearly important, but are internet services really that important, a driver of economic growth, employment, et cetera, that are going to sustain China's economy in the future? And I think there's a big open question there. You know, clearly, if regulation is rolled back, uh, and these companies go back to how they're operating before or get even close, then clearly they do look cheap uh, and, and they should do well in that environment. But if they're then, uh, you know, essentially forced to do national service, start to diversify into new industries that are kind of strategically important, reallocate capital, labour expertise, into areas essentially where they don't have that much of an edge, then, you know, that could sort of weigh on return of equity from that side of things. But... It could also lead to a kind of, yes, it could support long-term growth, but there could be a lot of waste along the way there as well. So I think there's a lot of open questions uh, around that. And we need to see the dust settle because in the short term, you know, China's economy, it doesn't seem to be doing that well. Markets wobbled. Uh, it's noticeable. There's a big sell-off when the government come out and say, don't worry, don't worry. You know, we'll eat off and the market rebounded. But it's still down quite significantly year to date, I think. Um, so, you know, it's not as though it's all reversed. But obviously for us, we, we try to take a longer term view. And, you know, within China's equity market, I think you probably need to align yourself with the government goals. So companies that are aligned with sort of common prosperity or onshoring kind of the value added in industry and pushing on the new technologies, 5G, things like this, you know, presumably those sectors of the economy and therefore the markets and companies associated could do quite well. But I think it's hard to believe that other sectors of the market like real estate uh, are going to do that well and presumably they just become pretty much organs of the state, much like telecoms and banks have. Uh, and, and therefore, you know, probably forms of equity become secondary in the thinking of, of those companies. 
Jean, did you want to come in on any of those points? Um, yes, I, I actually I think David made a really good point regarding you know aligning the investment with government policy, and uh, this is you know absolutely on the on the right point. And if we look at China's 2035 policy outlook, you know because of the one party system, China makes very long term plans, and in that policy outlook has clearly stated that some of the priority are in industry clusters, in high-end manufacturing, in semiconductors, technology component, clean energy. China is already a leader in clean energy, and this is not just an environmental win, but also uh, financial or economic opportunities. China accounts for 70% of the global solar module production. Half of the wind turbines are made in China. 40% of electric vehicle sales happen in China. And if you look at electric vehicle batteries, almost all of them are made either in China or Korea or Japan. So this is an area that will also have huge opportunities and a lot of government support. But finally, there's also digital China and innovation. These are also the policy directions. So if we look at digital China, the idea is to create digital economy, digital government, and the areas that will be um, the, the technology areas to be used include cloud computing, big data, artificial intelligence. And I think the internet companies will continue to play an important role in these areas. But this will, these technologies will be applied in transportation, energy, education, etc. So the, the Chinese internet companies will adapt themselves to more, move more towards these areas rather than just using a platform, um, collecting a fee. And when they become truly innovative, I think they would have, they will also benefit from these government policies. Brilliant, thanks. And so we kind of mentioned property a little bit and Evergrande's been back in the news recently um, with some more developments there. And I suppose, is there any kind of um, contagion risk to other areas of the Chinese market or is this very a very contained issue? Um, Jin, do you want to? Sure, um, on the property side, um, David was also making a very good point. This is, you know, China wants to change its development model, um, but the property slowdown was really engineered by the Chinese government. In the previous one to two years, because of the rapid increase in housing price, as we have seen globally, we have seen that you know in many countries after COVID, because of this wall of money going into the, the financial um, markets. And so, but in China, this, this is an issue for housing affordability. So the government wanted to control the risk in the property market, and they have been very strict in property policies. Um, they have limited lending to property developers. In the meantime, they tightened mortgages. And in certain cities, if you are the second time home buyer, meaning if you sold your first apartment, now you're buying your second apartment, the down payment could be as high as 70%. So that really strangled the, the property market, leading to the liquidity problems of some of the highly leveraged property developers. And I, um, I believe the, the, uh, the way to, the solution to this problem is basically a company like Evergrande, they would 
be in uh, restructuring, so slowly sell off the assets in order to pay back the, the, the bondholders or the other creditors. Um, but the contagion risk, I think it's, uh, uh, we already saw the contagion risk in the slowdown of property sales, but now the policy has turned to the other side. The, the goal of the government was to um, keep the property price stable. And in the meantime, wait for income to catch up to make housing more uh, more affordable. However, as we can imagine, it's a very difficult act. Imagine somebody walking a tight rope with a big pole. You know, if you tilt a bit to the right, uh, you know, you may fall fall off. You tilt a bit to the left, then you you have problem on the other side. And this is a, a, a very challenging balancing act that the Chinese government is trying to do now. But uh, in the last few months, the direction has been to the loosening and to support more the property market. For example, relaxing mortgage down payment. In certain cities, the um, the second the second time home buyer down payment has already been reduced to thirty percent. So this is one of the examples of how the property market is being supported. That's really interesting about the down payments. I hadn't realized that. David kind of Jin has suggested that the the contagion has already played in um, for for the Evergrande issue. Do, do you believe the same? Uh, yeah, well, I guess there's two ways that you could look at the contagion. Right? One is uh, spill over to other credits, and clearly, China real estate credit market has been very very weak, and so there's clearly been contagion there, uh, and rightly so because more and more companies, not just Evergrande, uh, was were found to have some kind of Sort of off balance sheet problems which people weren't really anticipating and as soon as there's been a liquidity squeeze the markets have struggled that hasn't really spilled over that that badly to other uh, sectors of china's markets actually or, or in fact the rest of the world so from that point of view contagion fairly limited i think there probably has been some contagion in terms of consumer sentiment um, because you know there, there seems to be a lot of multiple ownership of properties by people um, and so the idea that those properties are no longer just going to go up in value in a straight line and allow people to derive wealth from that. You know, I think there has been a hit to confidence, and I think that's one of the reasons, not the only reason, but one of the reasons why consumption has been weak. Um, in terms of looking ahead and how that pans out, I mean, yes, there have been some measures to loosen policy. I would say so far they've been quite marginal and Certainly on the kind of new housing starts and sales, we haven't seen a sort of major stabilization and turnaround, which you know you would need to see to really feel more confident about it. But I suspect going forward, you know, from some of the work that we've done, going forward, it's probably going to be a fairly uneven story. You can easily imagine that in major cities, major economic hubs, where property markets are quite tight, where people want to live for sort of career reasons, it's a familiar story, certainly in Britain where everyone wants to move to London to get a job. Uh, you could imagine the demand in these markets is going to be quite okay. The government might do some things to sort of help with affordability, maybe build some social housing and things. Um, and those markets and, the, and developers exposed to those markets are probably going to be okay. I suspect in some of the lower tier cities where vacancy rates seem to be quite high, where people seem to afford speculative properties and there isn't that same demand, then those markets look a bit more shaky. The developers linked to those markets might have problems for longer than is perhaps anticipated. 
And that can obviously have knock-on effects to those local governments as well. It derives quite a bit of income from land sales. So you could end up with, as the dust settles from the, from the kind of initial shock, a fairly uneven picture in the real estate market in China where pockets of strength, pockets of weakness. Interesting. Thank you. And so we've covered a lot of ground, but I do want to briefly touch on COVID, which, um, you know, for, for some areas of the market doesn't seem to really be a concern anymore. But recent news out of China has kind of brought it back in, into investors' minds. Um, how do you kind of think COVID will, will play out for, for China over the next while? David, do you mind clicking us off? Yeah, sure. So obviously, it's very hard to predict. Um, when we, or when I did our economic forecast for China um, the last few times, I've essentially, I, I have a bloke consensus forecast for China, basically predicated on the fact that because of the zero COVID policy, because we don't really yet seem to have got a concrete way of getting away from that policy, um, that there would be periodic outbreaks of COVID that would lead to lockdowns that would interrupt economic activity. We've, we're clearly seeing that at the moment in recent weeks, we've seen big waves of, of outbreaks. We've seen economic powerhouse like Shenzhen uh, close down for a week. Uh, and, and that will have an impact. And frankly, until there's a, there's a more concrete sort of pathway out of this policy, I know there's been a lot of speculation recently, but until we get a concrete sort of exit strategy, I think we're going to see that again and again and again. And so that's going to hit every time there's been a COVID wave we see a big hit on, for example, services, PMIs and activity, which, you know, it does then rebound, but there's clearly a hit. And you can also get some interruption in manufacturing, et cetera, as well. And so for me, it, it just shaves a few tenths off what I expect for GDP growth, but it's just almost impossible to predict when it's going to actually happen. Yeah, absolutely. Jean, how are you kind of thinking about the COVID situation over there? I believe the government policy is just uh, being the most conservative in the world. So first see how things play out for others. And when there's clear evidence that COVID is becoming not that dangerous, it's becoming an endemic, and most of the countries are already out of COVID, then China will follow. And uh, we already see data showing that today COVID death rate is about 0.3%. So it's already much less dangerous. So I think China's zero po COVID policy, it will be abandoned. It's a, it's a matter of when, not if. Um, in the meantime, the lockdown in China has been extremely um, targeted. There are cases where only a street is locked down. You know, a street is isolated. And uh, I think one thing we learned from 2020 is that a COVID or, or a pandemic um, disruption, it, at the end of the day, it, imagine if a person cannot work for two weeks or a month, does it really impact this person's earning power in the future? And the same way, if we buy a house and we know that house may have to be fixed for two months, but would that lead you to pay less money for that house? The answer, I think, is no. So when it comes back to investing or the value of the companies, I think the impact is minimal. Okay, interesting. Um, so I guess final thoughts for investors in um, who are considering China. Jian? I would say that uh, unlike the other markets, if you look at the US market in, in the last 20 years, you've had basically two big bear markets. 
2001 and 2 then 2008. However, in China, the market is much more volatile. In the last 20 years, we've had five or six bear markets. Each time the market is down 30%. And however, these bull and bear markets, they are challenging for investors to, to ride through these emotional roller coasters. However, it also gives investors the opportunity to periodically buy China at very low valuations. And in the past, you know, based on our experience, at the end, when the company's valuation is very low, there are many ways that 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 intrinsic value can show up. For example, the company can get acquired or they can pay special dividends. They can sell off part of their business to realize the value. So, and also China's policy is always counter-cyclical. When the economy is doing well, they tighten, they deal with problems. And then when the economy is doing poorly, there's supportive policy. And now we are in the market environment where the, the market the stock prices have come down so dramatically and we have so many cheaply valued stocks in the market. In the meantime, the government is loosening on policies. So as long as China doesn't get into a war, I think in the next few years, the investors should be having quite attractive returns coming out of China. Brilliant, thank you. David? Yeah, I don't disagree with, with much of what Jim said, but I think the point is you can't just buy the index in China because there's a lot of companies in there and we don't know what's going to happen with the technology sector, for example. So I think, you know, to access the better performance and the value that should, you know, benefit investors over the longer run as this kind of business cycle turns, I think you've clearly got to be very actively managing that and not buying an index. Um, so, you know, clearly there are opportunities, but um, you've got to tap into the right sectors in the market is what I would say. Great, thank you. Well, as always, yeah, we're trying to I, have plenty to think about. Sorry, Jian. Yeah, sorry. I, I would completely agree with that. I think a lot of investors, they have bought Chinese stocks given the uh, um, impression like I, it's like uh, Amazon. I just hold it for, for five to 10 years, but things doesn't work that way in China. And also the, the uh, you know, the, the business dynamic changes so fast and you have to understand the policy, the everything. And therefore, um, I think David had a really good point there. But thank you both so much. I mean, that's a it's it's been a very wide ranging and interesting discussion and kind of as we highlighted lots of different aspects for investors to think about. So they need to be quite careful when they're considering China is, is kind of the takeaway <laughs> I've taken. Um, great. Well, thank you both so much for your time. And um, yeah, we'll speak again soon, I'm sure. Mm -hmm.